Good morning, everyone, and uh, welcome to a United States Study Center online event uh, today in partnership with our, our friends across the Pacific, Pacific Forum, um, a think tank based in Honolulu, Hawaii. Um, my name is Ashley Townsend, and I'm Director of Foreign Policy and Defense at the United States Study Center. And I'm delighted today to be moderating a discussion to launch um, a new report put out by both centers um, as part of our deterrence dialogue series, uh, Integrated Deterrence in the Indo-Pacific, Advancing the United States-Australia uh, Alliance. Um, a new report written by US Study Center Senior Visiting Fellow and former Consul General of Australia to Honolulu, Jane Hardy. Before I go any further with uh, today's discussion, I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of Australia. The University of Sydney stands on the land of the Gadigal people of the Aurora Nation, and I pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. I further acknowledge the traditional owners of the country on which you are today and pay respects to their elders, past, present and future. As mentioned, today's uh, webinar is all about discussing the concept of integrated deterrence um, and the new report written by Jane Hardy this morning. Jane Hardy uh, has a long career in the Australian government um, as a senior executive service member and a senior career diplomat, um, where she spent most of her time in the Indo-Pacific region working uh, in the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, but has stepped out for a period of time to join the US Study Center as a senior visiting fellow. And indeed, we thank her for the time, which is rapidly drawing to a close that she spent uh, with us here at the Study Center. Joining me from uh, Pacific Forum is its president, uh, newly appointed, uh, David Santoro. Uh, David specializes in strategic deterrence, arms control and non-proliferation issues, and works with me at the US Study Center in convening the annual US-Australia Indo-Pacific Deterrence Dialogue an initiative we set up three years ago to begin an alliance conversation about how Australia and the United States can work together across all domains when it comes to strengthening deterrence and counter coercion here in the Indo-Pacific. The policy brief that Jane um, has launched today um, is the latest in our series of work um, that is linked to that dialogue series. And it's really on arguably what is going to be the most important concept coming through in the Biden administration's um, new national defense strategy, which many of us expect will be released sometime early next year. Um, some of our listeners will be aware of the term integrated deterrence as being a big part of the Biden administration's uh, thinking about national security, both uh, here in the Indo-Pacific, but more broadly when it, when it comes to the way that the United States today needs to adapt to stand down a number of challenges uh, to the rules-based order internationally. I wanted to begin uh, today's webinar though with a quote from US Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin, which he gave in late July at the International Institute of Strategic Studies uh, annual Shangri-La Dialogue Forum in Singapore. And the reason is that I think it is the most uh, elaborate um, 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 and certainly most recent definition that we've had to date from the Biden administration of, of, this, of this new concept. And I quote, integrated deterrence means using every military and non-military tool in our toolbox in lockstep with our allies and partners. Integrated deterrence is about using existing capabilities, building new ones and deploying them in all new and networked ways, all tailored to a region's security landscape and in growing partnership with our friends. 
In short, we're aiming to coordinate better, to network tighter, and to innovate faster. And we're working to ensure that our allies and partners have the capabilities, the capacities, and the information that they need. Jane, there are a lot of words in that definition of integrated deterrence from US Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin. You've just written this policy brief for Pacific Forum and the US Study Center about the concept and what it means specifically here in the Indo-Pacific. Uh, could you elaborate a little bit more about what you think in, in concrete terms, integrated deterrence will mean for the region and for US allies? Thank you, Ashley, and good morning, everyone. Uh, good afternoon, David in Honolulu. Aloha, and uh, good evening to our other guests. Um, thank you, Ashley. I, I honestly am not sure what US officials mean uh, at the moment by what they what what the way they're describing this. But as Secretary Austin's words that. Um, the, the Shangri-La Dialogue or the Fullerton Lecture and also at the Change of Command at Indo-PACOM in Honolulu uh, at the end of April, I was there and he he speaks and other, other officials speak all the time about what seem to be two main ideas. One is deep efforts with close allies who have great capability, opening the aperture for, for developing their, their capability even further so that they can work with the US in a really uh, profound way on extended deterrent, on, on um, collective deterrence. And it's very prevalent here in the Indo-Pacific. He mentioned all domains, land, sea, air, cyber, and space. Uh, so it's both horizontal and vertical. Um, the Indo-Pacific, of course, features a, a profoundly maritime environment and so, some of this thinking, I think, is so prescient here in this region, more so than other parts of the world, in my view. But two broad themes seem to be emerging. First, as I mentioned, the deeper integration between the US and its formal allies, Australia and others, who have treaties um, uh, with the US, creating synergies for high-end war fighting. These are the very advanced countries who have access to high technology and um, the wherewithal to, to build their militaries along these lines so that they can integrate with the US. Um, this bolsters both the perceptions of US deterrence power, credible deterrence, but also the actual material underpinnings of US strategic advantage in, in particularly in the Indo-Pacific. But secondly, when you look at the language of Secretary Austin, it seems the US intends to work with our allies to also build broader collective deterrence in a more, whole, more holistic way in this region. So, you know, that can be anything. There's a whole spectrum of options there, ranging from, you know, the hard edge aggregation of capabilities to sort of deter a joint adversary. But the other end of the spectrum is creating loose coalitions of regional partners. Americans always use the term partner as well as ally because not all of the regional countries, in fact, only five of us have formal uh, treaties with the US. So it's regional partners. Uh, these may be not formal um, arrangements, uh, but they may be uh, coordinated arrangements um, or activities you know, involving regional partners with their militaries into exercises and, and, um, and discussions. 
sometimes these in less less sort of formal ways of working still result in aligned messages to communicate a consistent deterrence message to any would-be adversary, even if it's not expressed as a deterrence message. Thanks, Jane. I, and I think you touch on, on you know, two really important parts of, of integrated deterrence, at least as I think about it um, in, in that response. The first being the gripping up, if you like, of, of allies and partners and the more seamless, <clears throat> the effort, ongoing effort to build more seamless coordination amongst them according to their will and capabilities and so forth. And the other element being this, uh, this uh, um, approach multi-domain approach to the kinds of coercive challenges in the region um, that the US and Australia and our partners are facing, which requires a, an, a, 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 a combination of military and non-military tools. Others might talk about the whole of government spectrum or the conflict spectrum more broadly. So, you know, integration of domains and integration of actors are two key components. Um, this is a good moment to, to turn to you, David, uh, as someone who's you know studied really the history and the regional application of deterrence and deterrence concepts very deeply, uh, to you, does this sound like something new or different? Thank you, Ashley, and thank you for having me at this seminar. Um, good to see you, uh, Jane, and congratulations on on uh, your your report. Um, to get to your question, Ashley. Um, I, you know, I don't think the term is particularly original. Uh, I think that, um, you know, you, you, you see some, some scholars have begun to, to argue that it is um, just another fancy word to dress up deterrence. And so it's like, you know, you, we, we're buying a suit to, to deterrence and it looks classy or it looks, um, you know, uh, cool again, uh, if, if I may say that. Um, and I think there is some truth to this. Um, the other thing as well that I'll mention is that, as you know, new administrations typically need to come up with new strategic lingo uh, to distinguish themselves from, from past administrations. So all, all this is true. That said, as you and, and, and Jane rightly pointed out, it's also about um, working cross-domain. It's about integrating allies. And so there are differences in the way we, we uh, are thinking about deterrence. And I guess I'll, I'll add something that uh, to me is important, uh, especially in the Indo-Pacific context. To me, it signals very clearly that deterrence is no longer meant to be exclusively extended by the United States. And as you know, particularly in Asia, the model has been extended deterrence, whereby the United States has been literally extending or providing deterrence to its allies and partners um, you know, basically covering them under its, its security umbrella. And I think the suggestion with integrated deterrence is that the more we integrate deterrence, the less we, the United States, will extend it. And so in other words, what extended deterrence really says is that deterrence now needs to become a collective endeavor. And um, it's no longer the sole responsibility of the United States. It is also the responsibility of regional players. Now, to be clear, I'm not saying as some do that extended deterrence is dead. I don't think it is. The United States as the most powerful player in the region will continue to extend deterrence. 
and it will certainly continue to do so with nuclear weapons because as you well know there is no a nuclear armed ally in in asia and i think the united states will also continue to extend the conventional deterrence in asia but again here the idea is that regional players need to come um, to the to, to the fore and do more um, and and you know that 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 means integrating plans and capabilities. And so I think this is this is the major difference. Yeah, David, it's, it's good to hear you say that. And, and, and as you know, um, you know, we've done together uh, and at both of our, uh, our respective think tanks, a lot of work on this concept of collective deterrence or collective defense, uh, federated defense as it's sometimes called in, in US think tank circles. And I agree with you that um, integrated deterrence at least could mean um, a recognition at a, at a very high level in the Biden administration that the United States uh, can't do it alone when it comes to providing um, uh, conventional deterrence now and into the future, but also when it comes to providing uh, subconventional deterrence, counter coercion effects in the region, and that that needs to be done much more with allies and partners. I might wager that again, that recognition of the inability of the United States to single-handedly uphold the regional balance of power is not entirely new. I go back to a speech uh, in uh, late 2019 um, that Australian Defence Minister at the time, Linda Reynolds, gave in Washington, where she quoted, where she stated rather, uh, that uh, deterrence is a shared responsibility, one that no country, not even the US, can do alone. And of course, uh, the Trump administration's 2018 National Defence Strategy, uh, although it didn't quite deliver on this component, <clears throat> was certainly about bringing in more the role of allies in particular in a deterrence by denial strategy here in the region. Uh, David, with those kind of points in mind, I wanted to just press you a little bit more though on the newness of this concept in a much broader historical sweep. We have a question uh, from one of our audience members, Lee Ramsey at Rand Australia, um, who, who wants to know what separates this term integrated deterrence from other you know, iterations or concepts of deterrence. And, and for instance, integrated strategic deterrence, uh, collective deterrence, um, extended deterrence, you've just spoken about a little bit. Um, are, is it about gripping up all of these kinds of deterrence into one thing? And if so, is that achievable? So, David? Uh, yes. Um, thank you for the question. I, I think that uh, we are still trying to learn what we mean by this term. Uh, as, as you rightly mentioned, there is no official definition. And uh, we've heard Secretary Austin and a few others talk about it. I, uh, my sense, again, is we are trying to look at deterrences in a much more holistic way, which means we're looking at it through the military lens, not just through nuclear, by the way, because deterrence has been traditionally associated with nuclear weapons. And because of the Cold War. And that's, that's gone, or it's going at least. We are now looking at it uh, at all level of conflict. We're also not looking at it simply through the lens of, um, of military means. We are having a whole of government, and I would even say a whole of society approach to uh, deterrence, which means that when we think about gray zone challenges, there's a deterrence question um, that, that it, it's a deterrence uh, response that we need to deploy. And so, uh, as I said, we are still sort of trying to explore what we mean. Um, it's certainly a collective endeavor. 
it's not something because it's integrated, it's got to be integrated with something. So between domains and then with allies, and it's particularly true, uh, as Jane rightly pointed out, in the Asia Pacific, which is, you know, the priority theater. So collective, yes, absolutely, and more holistic. But again, we will learn a lot more over the next few months about how, how you know, we can sort of flesh out or give, give some flesh around the bones of, of that concept. Thanks, David. Jane, I want to turn back to you uh, and pick up a little bit on, on where David just touched. Um, he mentioned uh, you know, the gray zone. Uh, and uh, of course, you know, very simply for, for our audience, we might argue that the gray zone is that space um, below the conventional use or the threat of the conventional use of military force where coercion and influence and other kinds of misdemeanors take place um, and where leverage and influence is bought potentially with conventional military or strategic effects as payoffs down the line. Uh, and it's certainly the way that up until now, China has been exercising and expanding its influence both regionally, but also within, uh, if, if you like, target countries in the Indo-Pacific. And the gray zone has confounded, um, um, I think, um, most uh, Western countries in terms of effective policy responses. In the report, you touch on the non-military domains of integrated deterrence, or at least you give your account of what that might be from an Australian perspective. Could you speak a little bit more about how you see uh, that relationship between grey zone and integrated deterrence as a concept, please? Sure. Well, uh, David mentioned going back to the Cold War years and the way the definitions have evolved over the years around the military, um, formal military and strategic nuclear deterrence questions. There are, very, there are various sort of definitions. There's deterrence by punishment, which we know is related to the nuclear question. There's by denial, which is what we see practiced uh, mostly now, which is uh, uh, preventing an adversary from using an aggressive action by, by acceptable means. And then there's, I, I like the idea of uh, deterrence by entanglement, which has been written on over the years. Entanglement is really using lots of diverse instruments to persuade or dissuade a would-be aggressor in whatever, um, whatever domain. And I think this is very important idea in the age of cyber intrusion, for example. The whole concept is, indicates that we're entangled together in this world of cyber and other great um, force multipliers for nations to achieve their objectives. Um, a, a lot of this entanglement has been um, expressed through norm building in multilateral forums. And even today, I'd argue that a lot of the grey zone um, addressing grey zone threats has been um, done this way in multilateral settings. Um, just to go to the grey zone, I'd just say that already through Pacific Step Up, through our ASEAN programs of the last few years, it's very evident that Australia, the US and Japan, and also India um, and other very capable allies, I'd add to that, France, et cetera, are working to build resilience um, in the region. They're listening to regional countries' uh, requests and concerns about what really does threaten them these days. Um, 
and really a lot of that is to do with sovereignty issues. It's to do with their, their vulnerability to, um, as always, the region is very beset by climate disasters or you know, natural disaster, sometimes man-made disaster with refugee flows and so on. So now this is being stepped up to a more sophisticated level. We've learned a lot about working together on HADR, um, humanitarian and disaster relief, uh, since the 2004 tsunami uh, from, I think it was the 2004 Boxing Day tsunami, where uh, the, the capable regional countries really worked together in a way that hadn't been done before um, to provide relief and uh, respond to this terrible event, which, which affected so many different countries and we were working across so many different jurisdictions together. Now in the cyber realm, uh, that's prevalent as well. If you look at the announcements by Japan, Australia and the US and by India now, um, a lot of focus on helping countries build resilience to cyber intrusion. Uh, responding to overfishing and illegal fishing has been a long, long um, project in particularly in the, the Western Pacific. Um, and the other element is in, uh, countering illegal activities, which can be quite devastating, the narcotics trade, for example. I mean, that's an example where the policing around the world has been very integrated over the years. Uh, we don't see it. We, uh, we shouldn't. I mean, it is a, a form of integrated deterrence and response, which um, has to be kept quite secret for it to work properly. But um, I mean, the whole point about the grey zone is that we're committed, we, we express this to our neighbours, we're committed to coming to your aid, understanding that in cyber, for example, we are interlinked. We have cables from Australia going to Papua New Guinea, Solomon Islands. We've just, spelt, uh, just worked with the US to create a spur for a cable to Palau. These are very practical examples of, um, of working in the grey zone to, to resist. It's really the building of resilience is the main aim here. It's, it's also an expression of some strong support. You know, we've got your back. We know that your country is vulnerable. Um, and it's about also sovereignty, helping countries to maintain their sovereign states and their, their assets. No, Jane, that's a great point to turn and, and to speak a little bit more about um, Australia and Australian um, uh, Australia's 2020 Defence Strategic Update. Um, you and I had, had a few conversations during the course of, of your writing this policy brief um, where we discussed, you know, to what extent does or might or should even uh, the Biden administration's thinking about integrated deterrence actually find its roots in uh, Australia's 2017 foreign policy white paper and 2020 Defence Strategic Update, and just for our for our listeners, you know what I mean um, uh, about that is, you know, that both of those documents teased out, you know, at least together, a strategy for a much more um, ambitious Australian regional strategy, but also uh, the blueprint for a much more holistic one. So that is to say, as you just mentioned, one where Australia is really seeking to play, and we can debate about how effectively we've got here, but really seeking to play. Um, a, a larger role in building regional resilience. The term used in the 2020 Defence Strategic Update is also about shaping the regional strategic environment 
here in the Indo-Pacific through whole of government actions and, you know, in support of that whole of government effort, which moves, as you've just said, from um, um, HADR and, and, you know, disaster and crisis relief, development assistance, economic and COVID recovery, through to security partnerships, defence cooperation, and so forth, all before you even get to the stage of talking about integration in terms of military operations between partners or allies. So, so staying focused on that lower end of the spectrum, um, do you see um, a relationship between the way the Australian government has been thinking about deterrence and resilience building here in the region and, and what the Biden administration is now talking about? Oh, most definitely. I mean, the, the language and the concepts embedded in these documents are quite coherent between and among each other, between documents uh, being put out by Australia, between the American documents, including the 2018 uh, Defence Strategic Update. Uh, but we're, as you said earlier, waiting now for the Biden administration's national security statement and defence strategic update. But look, the trajectory is quite clear. This is uh, a set of ideas which has been developing for, for quite some years. Um, actually, if you go back to 2016 and the Australian Defence White Paper then, uh, looking at it from the point of view of threat perception, there was actually quite a step change between that only one year before and the Foreign Policy White Paper that uh, the Prime Minister issued in 2017. Look at the chapters on the Indo-Pacific and the chapter on the Pacific step up. It's all about whole of government responses, non-traditional uh, non threats. But ultimately it's about changing power balances and the key focus on Australia's own region, the Indo-Pacific. Then you go to 2020 Defence Strategic Update. And by the way, the accompanying force posture update um, you know, the, the language of the, the framing of the Defence Strategic Update to shape, to deter and respond. And to shape is what we're all involved in. Um, that is to shape the regional environment, not simply respond, um, but to have the ability to do all three of those elements, shape, deter and respond. There's a clear... Uh, move towards Australian self-reliance in defence and, de and deterrence abilities. There's a clear focus on building sophisticated capability in order to address these multiple threats, some of them which are sub-military, and, and to understand the nature of the challenges emerging in the Indo-Pacific in particular. Um, I mean, the DSU clearly said the Indo-Pacific is now our primary focus. Um, and they, they really articulated in that document very specific, um, a very specific geographical location, Northeastern Indian Ocean, Maritime and Mainland Southeast Asia, Papua New Guinea and the Southwest Pacific. So it really focused our efforts. Um, it also talked, uh, the DSU uh, reflected very well on the idea that what the Americans call DIME, the um, diplomatic, information, military and economic elements of security and drawing together whole of government effects um, to make sure that, uh, that they work together well and deliver what we need. So capabilities in space, cyber, artificial intelligence and hypersonics and 
Defence Minister Dutton has spoken about this in recent months. Um, the D DSU definitely uses language and concepts which were evident in the American documents that have come out since. It's a, it's a very strong signal of convergence of ideas and views and intent between Australia and the US. So it puts us in a great position to now work with the US on developing ways of, um, of implementing uh, what Secretary Austin calls integrated deterrence. And that's a really important point, Jane, that I think, you know, deserves underscoring. When so often in the, you know, the public debate, um, it's, uh, it's the case that people seem to think that the way Australia and the United States together, including with other partners in the Quad and the trilateral with Japan, key Southeast Asian security partners, uh, you know, so often in the public debate, it is, it is the case that people seem to think that, you know, Washington is calling the shots. And I think, you know, from your response just then, and from looking at the documents, I think it's clear that what we are seeing is really, uh, at the very least, a, a shared um, a initiative, a shared drive, not just by Australia and the US, but also by other key US uh, treaty allies and partners in the region, including uh, those I just mentioned, India and Japan as part of the Quad in particular, behind this agenda, behind this idea of integrating and strengthening interoperability and collective capacity here in the Indo-Pacific. We don't have time to talk today about you know, the progress that Japan is making towards its own, um, its own capacity to contribute to collective self-defense. But I think that's another piece of the puzzle. And, and to understand that the driving force at some level is also the interest of and the ambitions of Australia thinking about what will best support a stable region and provide for the strategic autonomy of our neighbors and partners in the region is I think really important. I want to come back to you in a moment, Jane, about the higher end of the conflict spectrum, which you've written about at length in, in the policy brief. Um, um, but I wanted to pose the question first to David, because you're sitting uh, here in this conversation as well, and ask you first uh, about the, um, the way that interoperability between militaries, um, the US and Australia, but also more broadly US allies in the region, it, it is increasingly moving towards um, efforts to in, to, to, towards integration between militaries um, here in the Indo-Pacific amongst US allies in particular, in order to contribute uh, to these kinds of integrated deterrence outcomes or a more effective conventional deterrence posture in the region. You know, you're in a good position in Pacific Forum, looking at the, at the, at the suite of activities taking place across the Alliance Network. Could, could you elaborate on that a little bit for us? Uh, yes, absolutely. Um, before I do, though, I want to come back to the point you just made, which is that, um, you know, the United States is not the only player that is calling the shots. In fact, uh, that, that process is not only being driven by allies, but also being encouraged. And, um, you know, from a U.S. perspective, Washington actually needs its allies to lead. And it, it helps Washington to have allies like Australia to make the case for you know, a stronger alliance network, for more collective de uh, de deterrence and defense, and for that matter, for uh, um, you know, more integrated deterrence. And so this is something that I think uh, allies need, need to remember is that we want allies to make the case for us that um, you know, we, are, we are trying to make. 
because as you know, the United States has interest in, certainly in the Indo-Pacific, which is, a, as, as I mentioned, the priority theater, but it also has interest elsewhere and making that pivot, refocus or whatever you want to, whatever you want to call it, is uh, going to require uh, a number of efforts. And so regional allies have a role to play in helping the United States make, make that shift. Um, now, to answer your, your question about whether, I guess, um, integrated deterrence is about alliance integration or military interoperability, I will say that, um, I, I, again, I don't know yet exactly. I, 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 I think we are still we're still talking about integration in very general terms. Um, I think it certainly means alliance integration, um, and that is so the way I would define it is really trying to reduce and, if possible, eliminate any daylight that there might be between allies at the at the sort of broader, more general level. And I think it also means working on. Uh, and operating shared or for that matter, complementary capabilities. And so there is that connection between alliance integration and, and military um, interoperability. It just needs to be articulated and we need again, flesh, flesh on the bones uh, for, 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 for this. Um, one other point, and I guess that, that, that would, you know, would be a good segue um, is I, I think that, um, Allies also need clarity from Washington as to the deterrence role that they can and should play and where it fits into the broader regional or, um, security architecture. Uh, and it's a negotiation as to what allies uh, want to do and how best they can do it and how they can do it most effectively. Um, and so I think this is, this is also the way we can think about integrated deterrence is where where do allies, where, where does Australia or Japan or others, where do they fit into a collective, um, a collective defense architecture that we're trying to build as we are increasingly facing um, a, a, a problem coming from China? David, that, that's a great point. And, you know, as you and I both know, that's a theme that has come up repeatedly in the context of the deterrence dialogue. Uh, that we run and in our thinking on these issues over the last few years. Um, and it's important to underscore again for, for our listeners that um, you know, what we're talking about when it comes to the Alliance integration agenda, that is to say the, the actual thinking about upholding of regional order in a collective way, um, operating together, fielding capabilities together, pooling resources, responding to scenarios in predetermined ways or even having those uh, military and strategic planning conversations, all of that is very new. Um, none of it is fully developed and it is a seismic shift in the way that the Alliance Network operates or has operated up until now here in Asia or in the Indo-Pacific. Um, so I, I, you know, I think it's important to underscore that this is very much not uh, where we are. It's the direction in which this appears to be heading. And Jane, this is where I wanted to bring you back into the conversation, you know, from your time in particular that you spent as Consul General um, in Honolulu, um, you know, you've seen the way that the interoperability agenda has slowly started to become an integration agenda, at least between Australia and the US, but also with some other key partners. Could you speak a little bit about that and the options 
that that provides um, you know the alliance network in, in time or in the future. Um, Honolulu um, was an experience where uh, you get to see, particularly as a Five Eyes member partner, we can go into the briefings inside the uh, Indo-PACOM buildings and so on. But, you know, in Indo-PACOM and the component commands, US Army Pacific, US Air Force Pacific, and the Marine Force Pacific, um, and the Coast Guard, um, don't forget the US Coast Guard, a very significant player, um, especially in the grey zone activities, um, that there are a lot of Australians sitting there. There are, uh, of course, other Five Eyes partners, New Zealand, uh, Canada and the UK, inside those buildings operating with their American counterparts at various levels in, in the system. Uh, we have our embedded uh, officers. They actually are very senior people. One of them is the deputy at the US Army Pacific headquarters um, and at, um, up at, uh, at Fort Shafter. Um, that, that is a degree of integration which is profound, is already happening. Um, there are also French colleagues there and there are colleagues from the Philippines as another uh, alliance partner of the United States and very significant uh, representations by the Republic of Korea, South Korea's military and Japan's military. Now we all uh, we all in, we all work together very seamlessly. Me with my diplomatic colleagues and my um, Australian Defence Force friends with their um, counterparts from those countries. Uh, it is really a significant degree of integration and allows for a much greater understanding to develop over a long time, as well as exchange of ideas. Um, that's at the basic day-to-day -day level, it's already happening. But I also saw some very significant uh, relationship building and confidence building exercises. All of those commanders, um, Admiral Davidson, who was then the uh, commander for Indo-PACOM, also, um, uh, General C.Q. Brown, who was the commander for U.S. Air Force Pacific, and General Bob Brown, and also General LeCamera, who was the who were the successive commanders of U.S. Army Pacific, ran annual conferences with their counterparts, typically from all almost all thirty six countries which define the Indo-Pacific for that command, what's called their area of responsibility. And they were fantastic events. Um, we could attend them and they, they went to, to great lengths to try and work out what they mean by these terms, where their threat perceptions were common um, and where they could work together on things like, um, you know, countering grey zone activities or even understanding the nature of the military role in those, you know, broader whole of government efforts. I think um, it's important for people who, who aren't living there or who are not involved to understand that this is very significant. By the way, all of those conferences are available on the internet. I'd urge you to go and have a look at them. Um, I mean, moving from that though, there are, there are very significant exercises, uh, RIMPAC, the Rim of the Pacific exercise, which takes place every two years in Honolulu, is the world's largest maritime exercise. In 2018, there were 25 countries involved. 
with 45 visiting vessels. It was, it was magnificent. Um, that's not so much a direct deterrence exercise. That's, that's a joining of, of, of effort to try and flesh out the, the issues for interoperability. And those 25 nations, they have civilian advisors, they have military people, they have ships, some of them have uh, helicopters and so on, sitting inside a common command and control unit run by the Third Fleet um, with, within a building in Honolulu. That, that's really impressive. And then I'd go further and say our own talisman sabre, which is the, the most significant, um, broadest um, exercise that Australia runs together with the US, much of it in Northern Australia. Talisman sabre this year involved uh, the Australia and the US, of course, Japan, South Korea, and the UK. And that's a pretty diverse group. And they did some very high end um, activities. If you look at um, if you look at the, the results of Talisman Sabre, there was a really nice um, press release put out by the Australian commander on what they did, and um, all of this is made possible by the political leadership. So, uh, the final point I'd make on this front is look at Osmin twenty twenty one outcomes. I, I love the Osmin communiques. I was US um, branch head in DFAT for quite a few years and, and did some, wrote some of these. Um, they, the, they're very nice, concise documents. This year, there were forced posture initiatives announced and the three examples were given were greater integration um, across the three domains, um, air, sea and land all on Australian territory. The first was rotational deployments of all types of US aircraft in Australia, uh, which is an extension of enhanced air cooperation developed over the last decade. Secondly, increased logistics and sustainment capabilities of US surface and subsurface vessels in Australia. Logistics, such an important element of the craft and the, and the implementation of military power that a lot of people don't think about, but um, absolutely fundamental. And finally, more complex and integrated land exercises, army led with a greater combined engagement with regional allies and partners. And I was really pleased to hear that last um, force posture initiative announced because I think that's where you see and feel and, and under, understand that the rubber is hitting the road. We're doing this broadly and deeply with a range of allies and partners. Uh, the, the, uh, the other Australian-led exercises, Pitch Black for the Air Force and uh, Kakadu for the, the Navy, they also, if you look at those announcements, every year they've involved our regional neighbours. Um, and um, Talisman Sabre this year, I understand, involved not just uh, the countries I mentioned um, throughout the exercise, but also some other activities. Um, uh, a PASEX, a passage exercise, took place between the Royal Australian Navy and the Royal Navy of Brunei during a, a multifaceted talisman sabre. So there's a great deal of richness in what we see, and it's very transparent. We can see all of this happening. Yeah, Jane, I'm really glad that you touched on the uh, the Enhanced Force Posture Initiatives uh, that came out of Osmin this year. Um, for a couple of reasons, but but in particular, the way that you framed those as again, you know, increments in the ongoing 
effort to deepen um, alliance integration or the capacity for it um, to strengthen US forward regional posture in the region, which is a longstanding Australian uh, objective, but also to do so, you know, in ways that are that are again being, you know, it's a negotiation, but also being being driven to, to a large extent by Australia. These are decisions that are being taken by Australia that are important for the way that we conceive of empowering ourselves in order to be able to achieve the kinds of um, um, a regional order we want and the kind of role we want to have more ambitiously in that arc that you articulated coming out of the 2020 Defence Strategic Update here in, in, in the Indo-Pacific. Um, I think the most, you know, one of the most interesting ones coming out of that was actually, for, in, my, in my view, uh, the, um, the combined uh, maintenance, logistics and sustainment capability for maritime operations uh, that will be stood up, which will, you know, that term combined is signaling for those who are not aware that this will be very much a joint enterprise between Australia and the United States to build, if you like, sovereign capability that can support um, maritime operations of Australia, of the US, of other countries, both uh, submarines in time, but also surface ships. And that is an important part of, I think, um, illustrating how military interoperability is moving towards the capacity for integration and having operational and strategic effects. The other thing that we haven't talked about today, and it's amazing we've gotten to a quarter to the hour without it being raised, is, uh, is the AUKUS agreement. David, I want to turn to you first on AUKUS. Um, you know, a good friend of all of ours, Zach Cooper, in his great podcast, Net Assessment, which is part of the War on the Rocks uh, 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 conglomerate, um, um, talked about integrated deterrence. And he also, and I agree, listed uh, technology and speed as elements of integration. Um, but you can't get past the agreement to look at nuclear powered submarines for Australia uh, when it comes to looking at the technology capability piece of, of, of an integrated deterrence agenda. At the same time, it does seem to fit a little bit uncomfortably. So turning to you, David, could you speak a bit about how you see AUKUS and integrated deterrence sort of coming together? And in particular, I'd like you to give, um, at the request of our, of our good colleague and friend out at Perth, Gordon Flake, uh, an India PACOM perspective on, on what that AUKUS agreement and the Force Posture Initiatives announced just after it uh, sort of mean from their thinking. Sure. Uh, well, I mean, to me, AUKUS is really a, it's a piece of the integrated deterrence puzzle, if, if, if you will. So it's a, it's a high-tech cooperation agreement that will ultimately have deterrence effects. And I think will find its place in the, in the broader regional security architecture. And so what, what it does is really further knitting that deterrence network um, and, and from my perspective in doing that, it, it, it really does two things, which is number one, empowering uh, allies, very cap capable allies, and it's pushing them to work together and further integrating uh, their, their various activities. So it is part and parcel. It's, the, it's probably the best example of, of integrated uh, deterrence. Um, as, as to what it means for, for Indo-PACOM, frankly, I, I, I will pass on that because I haven't actually liaised with, with Indo-PACOM enough to, to uh, give an informed answer. But again, to me, it is a, it is a piece of that, of that puzzle. Um, what I will say as well, because I think it's important, is I think that, um, you know, AUKUS is also a very good example um, 
that shows that Europe has a role to play in Asia and uh, a role to play in integrated deterrence as well. The UK, as, as you know, has important interests in Asia and ARCUS really further entrenches or integrates it into, into the region. And that's a form of deterrence. France has vast interest in Asia as well, um, especially uh, as I like to say, um, you know, in the, in the two sides of the Indo-Pacific, in the Indo and in, in, in the Pacific. And um, well, so I, I'm a dual French, uh, US French citizen. So I, you know, I understand the French anger uh, about Arcus and not just the loss of the contract, but uh, also the way it was done. Uh, although, you know, from my perspective, I, I, I don't think it was really a surprise, but, but it seems to me that, um, you know, the, the, I think the calculus from a, from a US perspective is that France has so many interests in the Indo-Pacific that it's going to stay there and it's going to remain active. And down the line, they will be both. We will have Arcus and then we will have French activities in the region, which we may be able to further integrate and perhaps even in an Arcus plus framework. Uh, you know, not right now because I think it's too raw for, for Paris, uh, but, you know, the French are also very practical, and so I'm not excluding that, op that option. Um, and so this is a long way of saying that, um, you know, I think there is also a very strong European angle to integrated deterrence in the Indo-Pacific. And, I, I, you know, I think it's worth mentioning because this isn't just about the region itself. It's also about how we sort of trying to knit everything together. And, and for that matter, um, you know, it's, it's a tiny language change, but we are no longer talking about great power competition. We're talking about strategic competition, which again needs to be fleshed out. But from my perspective, uh, suggests a more sort of focused on uh, focused approach to China, as opposed to sort of lumping China and Russia together into that um, great power uh, competition construct. Thanks, David. It's, um, I think it, it might take a brave dual citizen to make the point that AUKUS is about integrating Europe into the Indo-Pacific. I'll resist the urge uh, to go further down that path, uh, other than to turn to you, Jane, uh, and ask uh, both about um, where you see AUKUS and, and European partners, you know, playing a role in the integrated deterrence um, 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 discussion that, that Australia might have. Yes, uh, thanks, Ash, and thanks, David. I, I'd just make the general point that AUKUS is a lot more than submarines. It's about two advanced uh, capable powers, the UK and the US, opening the aperture to share with Australia sensitive proprietorial technology. This is a huge opportunity for Australia. Um, it, it, it has defence applications, but perhaps it will down the track have civilian applications. You know, Australia is developing a civilian space program. And uh, uh, when I go back into DFAT next week, I'll be working on that directly. Um, so, but at the, at the launch of AUKUS or AUKUS, however you want to say it, the three leaders emphasised that what they're doing is strengthening the technological foundations for deterrence and stability to be applied in the Indo-Pacific. They did mention all of those things. At its core, AUKUS is a show of allied unity and resolve. 
And I think it's very clear that that resolve is to preserve the regional balance of power we have here in this region. Thanks, Jane. And uh, again, and thank you for uh, you know contributing to the clarification of what AUKUS is. You know, it's not an alliance; it is a defence technology uh, and innovation uh, partnership at its core, and it's a framework through which the submarine. Uh, deal may go through, and of course, plenty of other deals around high-end technologies with the military payoff in the future. We've got very limited time now, and I've got two final questions I wanted to pose uh, to both of you. Um, the first is, is, is taking from two separate audience questions, one from Alex Siddle, who asks about South Korea and whether South Korea can be brought into an integrated deterrence agenda um, noting that it is predominantly concerned about the DPRK and that there isn't necessarily agreement on the main potential adversary in the context of integrated deterrence when it comes to South Korea, the US, Australia, et cetera. Uh, and also uh, from a question from James Kelly, who asks about the role of extended nuclear deterrence when it comes uh, to, uh, to US posture around North Korea, asking whether there is a need for the US to reaffirm extended nuclear deterrence um, on the peninsula, even as we're talking about integrated deterrence. So I might go to you, Jane, first, then David, and I'll come back to you, Jane, for the final question in a moment. Oh, thanks, Ash. Really great questions from my good friends, Alexandra. Um, uh, I also served at our embassy in Seoul over the years, and from James, a great uh, thinker and friend in Honolulu. On the ROK or South Korea's role, I think Talisman Sabre showed that we can and are integrating the Republic of Korea into a broader idea of deterrence in the Indo-Pacific. Um, Talisman Sabre takes place in our waters mainly. Uh, so uh, we've done that. The ROK is also more deeply involved in the diplomatic discussion about the Indo-Pacific and the outlook for strategic um, balance in the Indo-Pacific. But one other thing I'd mention, apart from the fact that um, South Korean uh, military and our diplomatic colleagues in Honolulu are deeply involved in the Indo-PACOM headquarters there, <clears throat> is that um, South Korea joins in a interesting exercise which developed from 2018, which was led by Indo-PACOM eight countries working through their navies to uh, interdict or to observe and, um, and, and be a presence in the East China Sea in support of UN Security Council resolution against um, North Korean um, exports of coal and, and, and uh, gas and imports. So that, that's not well known, but again, that, that is, uh, uh, available on the internet, you can see some of, some of that happening. So South Korea, Japan, Australia, France, um, the, the eight, eight partners were working and are continuing to work side by side in the East China Sea. It, it's, it's a periodical um, event. It doesn't occur constantly. It's, uh, it's a bit seasonal, but that's a very interesting example of the ROK being brought into something that's not just about its fixation on North Korea, very understandably, but also about um, uh, you know how we work together 
on what essentially is a grey zone activity of illegal transfers. So um, that, that's just an example. Um, I mean, it's also another example of, of our re, uh, European partners being involved. Um, I'll just leave it at that because we haven't got much time. I hope that answered the question. Thanks, Jane. David, to you on the extended nuclear deterrence question. Um, can I say just a word on, on uh, Korea as well? Just very quickly, uh, I think, you know, I, 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 rightly so, um, the ROK is focused and is going to continue to be focused on North Korea. At the same time, though, they can and are doing increasingly um, joint work with us uh, not necessarily in a very visible way, but they are um, talking about, you know, what does the Quad mean? How could we cooperate in ways that prepare us uh, better to face, you know, the so-called China challenge? So there is there is interest, even though the focus, for good reasons, is going to be um, is going to be North Korea. So it's about engaging your allies and, and partners where they are and accept that they are going to have priorities that are not necessarily directly aligned with with ours um on the um extended nuclear deterrence question the answer is yes i think we need right now to strengthen uh nuclear deterrence and in fact there is a demand uh coming not only from uh, from seoul but also for from tokyo and, and others for um, more nuclear deterrence. Uh, and, and that means not only from an operational standpoint, but also from a, from a planning standpoint. Allies want to have some kind of a say or uh, some, you know, I guess you would call it nuclear closeness with the United States. They do not want the nuclear umbrella to go away. So even though we are integrated, integrating deterrence, conventional deterrence, nuclear deterrence will continue to play a role and, and, and matters to, uh, to our regional partners. So you know, I like to say that uh, in the 2000s, we focused about the gray zone problem. In the 2010s, it was focusing, uh, the, the focus was on conventional deterrence. I think this decade, we'll continue to talk about integrating uh, conventional deterrence but we will increasingly talk also about how we can better, um, you know, make better use of our nuclear deterrence and how to do that with our allies as well. And, and can I quickly jump in and say, um, the non-aligned countries, the ROK and, very, and, and many others understand through the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, the concept of assurance, which is an integral part of deterrence. So it's the more positive way of describing uh, the whole enterprise of deterrence. But under that treaty, uh, non-nuclear weapon states are issued formal assurances by the individual five nuclear weapon states. Uh, this is a very well understood concept and has been practiced for many years. So, um, I just wanted to pop that in. And I'd say that the idea of assurance is very important to other regional nations on many levels, bringing them into regional exercising, uh, developing and honing our threat perceptions together. What is driving their concerns? How can we collectively work on those concerns? These are ideas which I think are not emphasized enough in the whole discussion on deterrence. 
Thanks, Jane. And uh, we're going to have to wrap it up uh, there. Thanks, everybody. Um, but I just wanted to flag, you know, there are plenty of questions we haven't yet covered, including um, an issue that Jane touches on in the policy brief about the reason why thinking about uh, deterrence and the networking aspects of deterrence is likely to be a persuasive concept uh, for countries that are non-aligned in the Indo-Pacific who don't want to make choices between the US and China, uh, but do need to be reassured about where high-end integration um, um, uh, supports their interests at the same time as lower end um, efforts, uh, that is to say, the lower end of the conflict spectrum support their interests more directly in assuring the, th the sorts of things that we've talked about today, um, state sovereignty, regional interest, maritime interest, resilience, and so forth. But we're out of time, and it's great to see that this concept is generating so many uh, questions from our audience this morning, um, uh, and I'm sure we'll continue to do so up until the term is formally defined by the 2021, we expect, 2022, we expect the Biden National Defense Strategy. I, I want to thank you again, Jane, for your time uh, this morning and David for being um, our discussant this morning on the launch of Jane's report, Integrated Deterrence in the Indo-Pacific, and encourage all of our viewers and listeners uh, to download a copy of it from the US Study Center or Pacific Forum website. Um, for those of you that are avid followers of our webinars, uh, on Tuesday, the 19th of October, we have a webinar with our uh, director of, um, of the International Economy Program, Stephen Kirshner, and the launch of his new report, A Geoeconomic Alliance, The Potential and Limits of Economic Statecraft, uh, which will be moderated by my colleague, Susanna Patton, uh, in conversation with Christine McDaniel and Ben Herskovich. Um, later next week, uh, we also have a special event in partnership with uh, Asia Society Australia, uh, where Richard Maud, Susanna Patton, Alina Noor and Emma Connors will join me for a conversation about Biden's Indo-Pacific strategy to date. Um, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for attending uh, today's webinar. Please go to the US Study Center website if you're interested in those upcoming events. And as always, we value your feedback and engagement. So thanks from me, Ashley Townsend, here at the US Study Center and have a great day.